You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Now we have a time for a short discussion, and I have a few things I wanted to chat with you about first before we take questions. Feel welcome to uh, type your questions into the chat as they arise, and if you've already kind of expended all of your free time for the day, I won't be mad if you sign off or if you need to put your video off because you're starving and need to go get something to eat. That's totally okay. I totally understand. So again, thank you everyone for practicing and for joining. I really, really appreciate it. And I know I say that a lot, but I I really do mean it. The tradition of yoga is kept alive by students, just like yourselves. Everyone who's practicing is keeping the tradition of yoga alive. If there are no students, then what happens? Then even the most sacred teachings within yoga, well, they evaporate because they don't have anyone to be shared with. So by practicing yoga itself, you are here now and you are honoring this tradition. And I think about that a lot because whenever I teach, I feel very connected to uh, my teachers. And I think about how my presence here, you know, they're not here now teaching, I'm here teaching you. So I think about how I can best honor this tradition of yoga. In this contemporary day and age where yoga is this and yoga is that and yoga is here and there and everywhere, even in advertisements for Citibank. I think I literally saw someone doing trikonasana in an advertisement for Citibank. It confused me at first. I thought, oh, there's someone doing trikonasana. And then it said something about online banking. I was confused. To be absolutely clear, please try not to engage with online banking during trikonasana. Uh, So no problem with online banking, but it's an inappropriate place to engage upon that during Trikonasana, okay? I'm not sure what Citibank is trying to uh, communicate, but uh, maybe that their bank is yoga-friendly. I I don't know. I can't validate that. But like I said, don't do banking during Trikonasana. Now, if uh, the reason I say that is because there are some people that think that yoga was invented in our contemporary age. And oh no, what a great mistake this is. Yoga has not been invented, but yoga has been passed on from teacher to student. And everyone, you, me, every student practicing today is so important that we honor this lineage of yoga and we give thanks. Oh, thanks to who? Oh, thanks to all the generations of yoga practitioners who practiced in India, who practiced, you know, in hard times, in times when yoga was looked upon, you know, poorly during the colonial period, during, you know, times of difficulty in India's past. They just kept practicing, kept practicing, kept practicing. So now we have this great gift today. So sometimes people think, oh, well, who am I? You know, who am I now? to, uh, I'm not, you know, myself, I've been to India many times in practice, but I'm not Indian. I'm, you know, born in the U.S. I'm part Japanese and my dad is uh, from Ohio, but, you know, Trace and his parents were born in Scotland. So I have, you know, in terms of my genetics, have no direct connection to the lineage of yoga within India. I have only this love of yoga that I walked into a class, maybe like you, and I experienced some change. I remember all the way back in my very first uh, practice of yoga uh, was in a gym. I was 19 years old. 
And there, I looked in the, the the glass windows and I saw everybody taking headstand. And that looked dramatically more interesting than step aerobics. So I thought, let me go to that, that class tomorrow. Unfortunately, I did not look in the schedule and I went to a traditional Hatha yoga class, which was amazing that this was even in a gym at the time, more than 20 years ago, you know. And uh, I uh, kept practicing. And then when I found Ashtanga yoga and the, the lineage, the, the steep, the, the sort of steepness the, the, the way that the, the teaching was just steeped in the lineage. After I went into a very traditional uh, Ashtanga yoga practice, uh, there were pictures of all of uh, my teacher's teachers and other uh, saints and sadhus from within the yoga tradition all up on the walls. And it was, I, it was the first time that it really kind of hit me that, hey, if you love yoga, you can go to India and practice. And so within a year, less than a year of my first time ever stepping into a traditional Ashtanga yoga practice, I found myself in India practicing with my teachers over there and it's changed my life. So for me, the idea that someone could think that somebody with you know a trademarked series invented yoga is just completely opposite to my experience. I feel that this very notion that we can take something that's not ours and then repackage it and put a trademark or a copyright on it and say, now this is mine. And then you put your name on the end of it, or you put some other, you know, word that you've invented and say, this is my, my yoga. Now I own this. I've trademarked it. This is completely opposite to everything I experienced when I first started practicing. Many, many students would go and ask my teachers uh, in India, you know, um, what, uh, what, are you teaching, you know, what is, is this, a, is this some new style of yoga? And they would always just say, I have added nothing. I'm just teaching what my teachers taught me. I've added nothing. I just keep the tradition alive. I teach what my teachers taught me. They taught what their teachers taught them. I don't add anything. I need to add anything. I need to copyright anything. I need to create a product out of it. But here we are, many of us in, you know, maybe North America, maybe Europe, maybe, uh, you know, operating in some sort of capitalist framework where we're sort of taught to, you know, create our voice and put our mark on things and, you know, be all that we can be and be, you know, be all of these sorts of things. And then, and then how does that intersect with what yoga is? So what I think is so important, especially for non-Indian people practicing yoga, so anyone of non-Indian descent anywhere in the world, is to always think about, I have a debt from this benefit that I experience from yoga to honor the tradition of yoga as it is maintained in India as much as possible. So what does that mean? First of all, it means uh, not separating some of the more traditional aspects of the practice from how we present yoga. So I teach and practice Ashtanga yoga. For, for me, again, even the guided classes, we use the Sanskrit language. We have the opening prayer and the Ashtanga method. We do opening prayer. We do closing prayer. We use the Sanskrit chants. We use the Sanskrit names of the asanas to such a degree so that until I was practicing like five years, I didn't realize that, that these words had English translations. So I just didn't even know. I just thought, oh, I thought, I just, I thought it was only in Sanskrit. I didn't know. It took five years of practice before I realized, oh, this means I can, we can translate this. Let me try to study this a little bit. So how can we as non-Indian practitioners do our best to honor this wonderful gift? First of all, just being humble and recognizing that every day. Recognize, oh, I've received this. This is not my culture, but I'm benefiting from it. 
And it's not that I'm banned. I shouldn't practice because I'm not Indian or I shouldn't teach because I'm not Indian or something like that. But let me go in and study as much as possible so that I understand where this yoga comes from. I understand not only how I feel in my body after, but what the history of yoga as a totality is, right? And then if we do that, there are some things that you get a feeling for when you're immersed in the culture. And so there are some things that are very difficult to understand without immersing yourself in the culture, right? So I'd like to talk about um, one particular word that has come to ubiquitously symbolize uh, yoga all over the world. And if you think for a moment, I bet you can think about what word I'm going to say. So anybody want to wager a guess? What do you think? Can you think about what word I'm going to say? Just take a moment and you can uh, think about it in your mind. And yes, I'm going to talk about the famous word namaste. Because now this word so symbolizes yoga that people who have never stepped into a yoga class, they say namaste. Actually, they more say namaste rather than, you know, namaste. But uh, it's happened to me walking down the street holding a yoga mat. And some, usually a man in a car, decides that now is the time to roll down the window and say, namaste, baby. And I'm thinking, you've definitely never done yoga. Like, you've just watched some video about it. And this is not the way to get on my good side, number one. Number two, I'm married. It's not going to work. Like, what? What? I, I always wonder what the car versions of that expect. Like, is it the, is the expectation like, hey, that was really sexy. Let me, uh, can I jump in the car with you? Because you yelled it, you yelled namaste at me. Like, this is absurd. Clearly, someone who uses the word in that way has no direct relationship to, to yoga. This is just a kind of, you know, perfunctory or circuitous, uh, you know, like a tangential relationship to the yoga practice. And so um, I felt honestly in that moment, you know, in this situation, uh, more than the average offense of, you know, being called like, hey, sexy or something like that. I felt offended on the behalf of the yoga tradition. I felt like now this is not the way to use this word or to honor what yoga is and what yoga represents, not only to, you know, India and the Indian diaspora, but also to, to, to what it represents to, to, to yoga practitioners. We all know from practicing yoga that soft vulnerability that comes from a sense of connection to the sacred, you know, and, and, and this is what yoga represents, right? For, for so many people, we come in and we find a sense of the spirit, and that sense of the spirit makes us humble, makes us connect into something eternal, and then it brings us back to the mat. And it's an answer for so much soul searching, for so many what I could call spiritual seekers around the world, both within India and also of non-Indian descent. And, and, and there's something to be said for people that have not been able to find that within their own culture. And then to interact with these casual usages of the word namaste are kind of you know, offensive, you could say, hurtful and harmful. And in a, in, in a very kind of contemporary way of, of talking about what's going on, it's an act of, of cultural appropriation. I'm sure everybody is here with, um, here is familiar with what cultural appropriation is, but just for the sake of absolute clarity, I'd like to, um, kind of explain what that is. So when we appropriate something, I talked a little bit about kind of the capitalist mindset of putting our, our badge or our, 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 um, you know, our name on things. So when we appropriate something, we take it for use of our own. And this is usually something that uh, we do from a place of power. So when we appropriate culture, uh, what happens is it's usually what's called a dominant group of society takes 
cultural uh, 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 cultural um, pieces and 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 very uh, sort of subtle aspects such as words or music or dress or something like that of a non-dominant group, and then uh, sort of repackages them in a way that's more palatable to the dominant group, and then ultimately profits off of that. Now, the example that I used, this guy shouting namaste baby at me, certainly was not profiting off of that. I looked the other way and I kept walking. So this one particular person did not benefit. But I think if you think for a moment in our popular culture, there are numerous permutations of the word namaste that have come up, right? Which are uh, an example of the type of kind of, uh, you know, appropriation that I'm, that I'm talking about. So uh, a very common one that most people uh, bring up in discussions like this is namaste. And this is uh, one of the classic examples of how cultural appropriation takes what is sacred and turns it to profanity. So when we think about slay, you know, what does the slay mean? It means to kill, right? It means to like obliterate. You slay a dragon. You, you know, if you're the, the, the word that's coming up in my mind is the heavy metal band Slayer, you know, and so they were they had like crazy symbols of, you know, profanity in their music. I mean, no offense if you like them, you like, I'm not telling you not to listen to them. It's just very different and stands in dichotomy to what namaste represents. So if we take um, the, the notion of, of um, like killing or slaying, this is the complete opposite of the notion of surrender or sacredness, which is what, again, the practice of yoga is ideally is representing and, 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 and meaning for so many people who practice and, and, and specifically within its historical context within India itself. So this is a classic example of just, um, you know, a, a harmful permutation of the word that comes from an act of, of cultural appropriation. And it's not like people who made that, you know, namaste, I think that this is something that appears on t-shirts and things like that. It's not like they sat there and said, how can I be really offensive to all yoga practitioners and people of Indian descent? And how can I do that? They were just operating from the blissful ignorance of the dominant culture, which is just kind of having fun with the word that they didn't have a direct relationship with. So this is why when this is brought up, a lot of people will say, oh, why are you you so sensitive. Oh, we're just playing around. Like, can't you just chill out a little bit? You know, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a playful play on words, you know, like it, there are numerous play on words that we, you know, make all the time. Like I just, um, I think I, uh, you know, we can, uh, and then that are not harmful, right? So we can do those all existing within, you know, within one language, for example, or, you know, Miami, we have a lot of, uh, play on words that exist between Spanish and English. And that's very much part of the culture here in Miami. So it's not that all play on words between languages is necessarily offensive. It's just in this particular example. Um, I also want to, uh, uh, bring to your, bring to everyone's attention that the ignorance that's afforded by members of the dominant group are not afforded, not allocated towards members of the non-dominant group. So, for example, if um, if the if the if the situation were flipped, it would it would immediately be stamped out when a member of a non-dominant group were to engage in an inappropriate, um, you know, uh, action that is within the dominant culture of society. It would just not, you know, just immediately be pointed out. And this is something that you, as yoga practitioners, even though 
it might not feel comfortable, even though it requires us to kind of go into a little bit of a space where we're like, oh, so what am I allowed to say? You know, it requires us to go into a space of embracing the discomfort. And the way that we embrace discomfort is by diving in and gathering more information. So I just want to go over a few of the other permutations of um, namaste that I've, that I've heard is um, when, uh, you know, when, when we when we have uh, namaste in bed, then this also comes up. And so we think, and so now this is, this starts to play again with, with different aspects of culture where we say namaste in bed. So it's, it's, it's a complete, completely opposite view of what the actual meaning of the word namaste actually means. So if we think namaste in bed, if we, and we, I haven't talked about that, but I will in a moment what the actual word namaste means when we have namaste in bed, or I think some other ones are like, namaste eating my pizza or something like this or you know other other words even combined i think i've seen namaste combined with with um some some english curse words as well so uh like namaste you know mother effer you can complete that for yourself or namaste with a b word that comes after that you know not referring to a female dog in breeding season but referring to um you know a slang word for women right so this is also a complete juxtaposition between the sacred and the profane so again i would encourage all yoga practitioners to in order to honor namaste to stay away from those types of uh, heinous acts of uh, kind of harmful cultural appropriation. The first time I think I heard the word namaste was actually in India. In India, um, And uh, when some of the local people in Mysore would find out, oh, I'm practicing yoga, they would often say namaste because this was a greeting associated with spiritual practice. And the other times that I came into contact with this was during what is called pranam, which is when we say thanks to our teachers, when we say pranam, so namaste, we bow the head down in an act of surrender and in an act of devotion and gratitude and thanksgiving. And then the next time that for me, the word um, namaste came up was in what is uh, one of the shanti mantras, and this is interesting because we often hear it, you know, at the end of class or here or there, sometimes at the beginning as a greeting. So sometimes people will say namaste, yogis and friends, or namaste, everyone, hello. So it's treated as a greeting, hello. But what are we uh, saying hello to? So the first, this is like maybe the third time that I came into contact with the word namaste was in one of the Shanti mantras, which begins, and maybe you're familiar with it, or maybe you're not familiar with it, with Om Shamno Mitra, um, Shamno Mitra Sham Varunaha, Shamno Bhavatwardhyama. I'm not going to say the whole thing for you. It's very long, but in the, the next refrain begins, Namo Brahmane Namaste Vayo Tvameva Pratyaksham Brahmasi. Again, I'm not going to say the whole thing, but you can hear those two words, Namo Brahmane Namaste Vayo. So we have both Namo Namaha presented in the traditional context of a Shanti Mantra. And just to translate those two lines, um, you know, Namaste, greetings to Brahman, the universal soul, or we could say God, and Namaste Vayo, right? So the Vayu, the breath or the life force, when we say like greetings and salutations uh, to the life force. And so we can almost see the act of prayer and the act of gratitude and the act of sort of greeting and, and humility contained sort of within that, particularly in this, um, you know, in this context. So again, let's dive a little bit deeper into what the etymology of namaste is so that we can think about when should I say this? Am I allowed to say this? 
you know, what I don't want to do and what I've been subjected to also, and which I don't encourage anyone is to, is to take knowledge and awareness and turn it into and weaponize it so that then you can go out and sort of point fingers and say, Oh, you said namaste at the wrong place. You said it here instead of there. And then you become like namaste police. So I don't think that serves anyone because then again, we've just weaponized uh, you know, knowledge and, uh, you know, the belonging of, of another culture. Instead, it can be very, very useful to just, you know, take in education within our, within ourselves. All right. So namaste. Uh, we can also sometimes, uh, hear as namo, nam, you know, namo namaha, namaskar or namaskaram sometimes as well, just namaskar. So, you know, namaskar is something we do. So where do we use namaskar? Surya namaskar. Right? Surya Namaskar. So sun salutations. We have the word salutation. Surya sun namaskar. Namaste. Right? Same thing. And what is the act that we oh sorry, I've just kicked a cup across the room there. Okay. It, it didn't break if anyone was worried. Um, so uh, what is the act of the sun salutation? So if we think about this, right, A come inhale, we raise the hands up, and do exhale, we fold forward. So now we start to, to engage in what you could think about as an act of physically bowing down. So in the namaskar to the sun. If we think we're we're saluting the sun, look at what these actions are. We go through what we could call the full body pranam, and pranam is a bow or a worship. So when we think about Surya Namaskar, you're bowing with your whole body to the sun, to Surya. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting. So sometimes we uh, we can understand that the act of namaste is considered to be one of the uh traditional acts of pranam, the traditional acts of bowing down as an act of worship. So if we can even break it down even, even further, so we have namas and or nama, namaha and te. So te is, you know, to you, nama, uh, bow or a reverential salutation or a greeting or an act of adoration, which is also interesting because most of the, or so very, very often we translate namaste as I bow to you or a very uh, common kind of, we could say very creative and poetic translation, which you maybe have heard in a yoga class, which was popularized um, by Ram Das and also, you know, sort of disseminated in the contemporary culture. And, I, you know, I definitely heard this uh, and, you know, from from sources before, particularly Western sources, whereas Namaste was translated as the light in me bows to the light in you. How many of you have heard that before? Would you give me a yeah, almost everyone? Right. We've heard that. Now, where does that come from? Right? It's a creative kind of poetic interpretation because the actual etymology of the word does not include I. In fact, nama could also be not mine. And this is very, and it's important in terms of etymology to point out because what is yoga? Yoga is to purify the ego, right? To, to, to get rid of the ego. So it's very important that the word namaste does not have I within it. There is no I. It is simply a bow. It is simply an act of reverence and it includes the obliteration of the, you know, the removal of the I in that. So when we say the light in me bows to the light in you, there's a, an equivalence that's presented that is actually not so much in the traditional sense. Um, when we bow to someone, when we surrender to someone, we're essentially turning, like getting rid of the ego. We're purifying the ego, removing the ego. So to add back in the I 
into the, you know, into the translation, it, it kind of misrepresents the, the, you know, the, the, the history of the, the, the root word and also the, the true etymology of the, the actual, you know, actual word, you know, namaste. Now, if we think about historically this act of, you know, placing the hands in prayer and bowing down, this is ubiquitous all over Asia. You know, I think this is something that you see if people have traveled to Thailand. Uh, this is something that many people do in Thailand, for example, will see that hands placed into prayer position or what is actually called Anjali Mudra. And when the hands are together in Anjali Mudra, then uh, the standing form, like when we stand and place the hands in Anjali Mudra, this is, a, again, a form of pranam, a form of what's called prostration or bowing forward. And for me, pranam was always something done to uh, a teacher, an elder, or even a deity. So it's pranam is something you do to someone whom you seek to surrender towards. And for me, the ultimate act of pranam was always at the end of practice, uh, thanking my teacher. And I have uh, uh, so many memories of waiting for my teacher after practice. I maybe have gotten an, you know, an adjustment that day or not, but the practice itself was so meaningful. And if, had my teacher not been there, I would have not had the blessing of that practice. So I would wait and I would do what is a you know, traditional pranam. I would place my hands on my teacher's feet and then place my hands in prayer. And, you know, uh, sometimes I would say namaste, sometimes not because he was very busy. Sometimes he would just, you know, hardly be paying attention because <laughs> there was another student that needed help, you know? So this act of pranam is something for me at the end of every yoga practice that is so important to bow down. If I'm practicing by myself, I get up at the end of uh, my final relaxation and I take pranam, even though my teacher's not here. I have a, either a picture of my teacher or um, a candle that I light and sort of the symbol. Uh, if I'm traveling, I don't, I don't carry like a little picture of my teacher with me and put that up everywhere. So if I'm not home or in a shala space where there's a dedicated altar, I take a bow down if I've been able to light a candle and I try to engage in that act of pranam. Because for me, every practice is about you know, getting rid of the ego a little bit and showing that act of surrender, showing that act of, uh, you know, bowing down and, and um, you know, and, and surrender, you could say. So I mentioned Anjali and Anjali also is the Anjali Mudra with the hands uh, pressed into, hands in prayer position. Anjali Mudra is different than pressing the palms flat into each other, all right? Anjali Mudra includes a very small space uh, in the, the space between the hands. So if you'd like to try that, you can put all the fingertips together and let the heels of the hands touch. And you'll notice that there's a natural kind of small space between the palms folded together. And this is the space that uh, the empty space into which we could hold and offer flowers or water or make a donation or receive something. Sometimes uh, the this um, uh, ansh, has been translated into honor or to celebrate. Uh, and Anjali itself is, uh, connotes kind of a, or signifies a divine offering, a gesture of reverence. And so sometimes we, if you've been to a traditional puja, uh, which is a purification ritual, you'll hold your hands open and receive some water sometimes, which has been blessed, or sometimes some rice or almonds or some other items that are in the hand. And so this is the same kind of space into which the blessing happens. All right. So we can let that go. So when we're doing the opening and closing prayer, we begin with Om, holding the Anjali Mudra in an act 
of reverence and honor to, you know, the tradition. And when we say uh, namaste, it's the same concept of, you know, bowing down. And with that Anjali Mudra signifying uh, the act of worship, right? And, and so we have to understand that this is what yoga is, that yoga is a sacred act of worship. And we can't divorce the physical practice of yoga, which is very appealing to many people, the stretching aspects from this concept of devotional practice, from this concept of, uh, you know, deep worship, no matter how much we want to. We can teach a stretching class. That's not a problem. You can teach it. There's wonderful benefits of stretching the body. We can take a calisthenics class at any time. This is great. You know, my mother-in-law, she was doing adult gymnastics and she was benefiting a lot from that. Great. It's no problem. But they did not try to say Om at the beginning of class. They did not call it yoga. So then they were also free to do all sorts of other things. This is okay. Then we're doing something. As soon as we use the word yoga and we start saying Namaste, then we have a connection into this uh, sort of very reverential worship-based tradition. Now what's come up in um, contemporary, uh, you know, USA is that we have this kind of tension between the benefits of yoga and the cultural origins of yoga. So at some moment, this is very uh, problematic in um, many Christian countries that there are lots of uh, people that say that, you know, very religious people that say that yoga is like um, uh, worshiping the devil or something like this. I don't know if anybody has heard this, that, you know, there are some some people that some priests and things like this, a student of ours uh, from Poland, she said that there's a priest in Poland that has published some document that said that each of the asanas represent um, some letters and that uh, when you are practicing yoga, you're sending text messages to Satan. And I thought that at some moment, that's a, on one level, it's humorous. You know, on another level, it's very sad because people take it seriously and think, oh, I can't practice yoga anymore. I don't want to text with Satan. I'm pretty sure that if Satan existed, this creature does not have a cell phone. I'm pretty sure about that. So I'm, I'm going to wager to say that there's absolutely zero risk that anybody is sending any text messages to Satan if a Satan exists. I don't want to say Satan exists. But if the creature exists, no cell phone is there. There's some... It's a, some world without cell coverage. I'm sure that's a dead zone, if nothing else. <laughs> so next thing that I've heard is that yoga opens you up to demonic possession. Oh, so now I'm going to be, uh, uh, last time I checked, that's never happened to me. I've been practicing for more than 20 years, you know, and I should say I have no problem with Christianity. I'm a big fan of Jesus. You know, I have no problem with Christianity. I'm a big fan of Jesus. But I think it's an extreme mistake to have such fear of another culture that then we create, uh, that then there are all of these uh, like scary images that are presented. So now we're at this point where at some moment, you know, yoga was banned in public schools in North America because of priests saying that yoga was satanic. Oh, banned, I think, particularly in the deeply religious states of the South here in the United States, states like Alabama. Um, I think also maybe not some other states, I could be mistaken about that, had banned yoga because of its religious and Hindu significance. Uh, and, and then recently, this has come about that the legislature of Alabama has decided to remove its ban, rescind its ban from yoga, 
However, maybe some of you have heard this already, that they have included within their removal of the ban of yoga asana, they have now banned the word namaste. So it's a very strange world that we live in. First, the dominant culture takes the word namaste, turns it into some slogan to sell who knows what from pizza to staying in bed to whatever they want to slay. Next, when discussion of the word includes respect of the culture, then the word becomes banned. Now, you cannot say it at all. So we are flipping from one extreme to another and not finding the place in the middle where we can appreciate and engage with some of these wonderful tools of spiritual devotion and realization without, you know, harming the culture of origin and without so much fear that suddenly we're going to be, you know, texting with the supreme overlord of the underworld. You know, it's a, it's a bit much. So what is this, uh, this, this way in between, right? Well, it's, a, it, it's, it's mostly gray and it's not definitive. It's not, oh, you can only say namaste here. You shall never say namaste because you're not Indian. So we have to find a way to move away from fear and into knowledge and wisdom. And this, my friends, this is yoga, the removal of the seed of avidya, of ignorance, into uh, the, 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 the truth of bearing wisdom, right? That we ultimately come and experience, but it requires many years, many, many years of practice. And we have to kind of navigate and straddle, you know, different, um, different places within ourselves, different places within, um, within our culture as well. So this was uh, what I wanted to uh, share with you today. And I uh, wanted to see if um, there are any questions that have come up. I'm going to look into the chat. I see that there are many people who are connecting with this uh, discussion. So if you have any other questions uh, that have come up specifically about this, I'll do my best to answer or anything else that have come up. So I also have time to answer the practical questions about the yoga practice because we have just practiced as well. And I see some of those are in the chat. So let me scroll all the way back up and see what has arisen. Well, Melody, hi, Melody, is asking a question. Melody says, I have two questions. One about extended side triangle and supported headstand versus headstand. May I ask over the voice? You want to ask over the voice, Melody? I think, yes, I think you can. Super good question. So Melody, thanks for asking that question. And just to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about in Parsva Konasana A or extended side angle pose, Melody is asking, um, once her hand gets to the ground, what should the knee be doing? And so this is interesting because um, this kind of gets into the heart of what is this asana about? So in, in you know, Parsva Konasana, extended side angle pose, when we bend the knee in the Ashtanga yoga method, we take the hand on the outside of the, you know, of the, of the foot. Some other styles of yoga put it on the inside of the foot. In Ashtanga yoga, we have a very particular reason why the hand is on the outside. So your hand is on the outside. Your knee is tracking over your foot, but the muscular activation is going to be the muscular activation of external rotation. So you're going to push your knee into your arm, and then you're going to push your arm into your knee. And this will help strengthen the muscles of external rotation. And the only way we can really achieve this is if we really push that knee back, and then this will strengthen, again, the muscles of external rotation around your deep six, around your hip crease. And then when you push the shoulder forward, that also creates a limit 
to make sure that your knee isn't moving away from the plane of aligning with your foot. Okay. If you do the other, uh, the other movement where you put the hand on the inside, you could potentially end up activating your inner thigh and trying to roll the knee inward. And if you pull the knee away, there's no limit. So then you can misalign the knee and potentially overstretch it. Make sense? Okay. Let's go for your second question. Super good question, Melody. So again, just to be absolutely clear. So Melody's asking about how to transition from the tripod headstand, which is easy for her, to the Badhasta Shirshasana or the traditional headstand. And before we go into that, first of all, like why? Like why shouldn't Melody just get to do her tripod if she could do tripod? You know, so this is many students have the same thing. I can do tripod. Let me just do tripod. It's easier for me. First of all, the tripod position is what's called the unsupported headstand, which means that if you twitter or, or move at all, there's no support for the neck. And because of that, it's recommended not to hold the tripod for more than maximum five to 10 breaths. We don't want to do long holds in the tripod position because as your arms start to get fatigued, you won't have the skeletal structure to support the neck, which means that the neck could potentially be placed in, you know, in danger. We can't hold it as long without too much fatigue of the muscles. So, so in the closing poses, wherever you're going to do a long hold in the headstand, we want to have bound hand headstand or Badahasta Shirshasana A position. It's the only one that's recommended for long holds. Now, the, the, the sort of follow-up to that is that eventually we want to be able to hold headstand for something like 50 breaths. And then it becomes very meditative and you can stay for a long, long time. And then some of those deeper, more esoteric, spiritual benefits of headstand start to, uh, you know, build up in our bodies. So this is, first of all, that's the reason. So then we're there. Now we understand the reason. Now we can do a tripod, but tripod is more about building strength in the shoulders, and it's uh, tripod is used as transitions in and out of other asanas. And tripod is considered the first of the unsupported series of headstands uh, that are in the seven headstands of the intermediate series. And they do actually get worse. They're, they're less support than a tripod. So we don't recommend to try those randomly. We want to really build up uh, the strength to do that. Now, there are a couple of things uh, that come up with um, the Badahasta Shirshasana first and is, is shoulder flexibility. If the shoulder is not flexible enough, then what will happen is as you start going forward, your elbows will peel off the ground or you'll feel like you can't push into the elbows strongly enough. So then we have this kind of chicken and the egg question of my shoulder is not flexible enough, so I can't get the foundation. I can't get the foundation, so I can't uh, go up. So what do I do first? Do I stretch? Do I strengthen? What do I do? How do I do this? So puppy pose, puppy pose, placing the elbows on blocks so that you have the, the Badahasta shape. And then we get the feeling and then you can activate. So then instead of just stretching, you press the elbows into the blocks. So you activate the muscles that you would need to get that uh, position. Of course, I recommend the dolphin, but you said the dolphin doesn't always work for you. So do a little bit of dolphin, but don't go, don't go crazy with dolphin. Dolphin plank is also a good one. Um, and then of course, actually just holding the uh, Badahasta Shirshasana prepare itself with the head actually down. This is actually a really, really good one. Last one, you can take, um, you know, maybe Badahasta uh, Shirshasana, the position, so you get your bound hand headstand. Then you can step up. You're not going to, don't go up into the headstand from here, but you just step up your feet either onto a block or two blocks 
or onto a low-hanging sofa that's very stable. And then that way you get the feeling of bearing some weight in that position. You stay for like five breaths and then you come on down. And don't try to kick up or go up from that elevated position because we could very easily overshoot once you elevate the feet. But then that's just a strength building exercise to get your arms and your shoulder girdle kind of comfortable with bearing weight in that position. Make sense? Good. Super. Oh, for sure. For sure. Thank you for practicing. Yeah. So I'm going to pop over into the chat again. Let's see if I see a question from Diana. Hi, Diana. Diana says, thanks a lot for this class. I would like to ask you this. It's three years that I have a regular practice of Ashtanga and I have difficulty with sheer shasana. So we're in the headstand kick. When I arrive at this asana, my shoulders feel sore and weak and I cannot find the force to stay in this asana. Do you have some ideas? Well, Diana, try to practice your shasana uh, outside of the practice so that you get the feeling, you know? Uh, So if you can't do it in the flow of the practice, it's just stamina and and endurance. So try to practice it with a little bit of warm-up like in the afternoon just so that you can get the feeling of a shirshasana, of a headstand position. Also, like I said in the class, stay up for a little bit and come down. Take a little break. Give yourself a break and go up again. Over even more years of practice, like maybe three more years, if you keep working like that, it'll get better. This is just strength and endurance. You're doing it, but you just don't feel that you have the, you know, the ability to stay. No problem. Just uh, keep working. And if you got to go down for a little bit, then come back up. Okay. Let's uh, see what else is in the is in the chat for questions. Thank you for all the nice comments. I very much appreciate it. Okay. Let's see. We've got a question from Tertia. Tertia, hi. I have a question regarding Urdhva Dhanurasana. Sometimes people cue to lift the heels. How does this help? It's hard to push from the quads when your heels are lifted. And a related question. How do I get my glutes to properly relax in back bends? All right. So I know some people cue to lift the heels. That is not a cue that I use because of the exact reason of what you just said. If the heels come up, it's very, very hard to push down and root firmly into the quadriceps and push those quads into the ground. As soon as the heels are up off the ground, you get the feeling like you're deeper, but it's going to be way harder to push the heels back down. However, there is a time when the heels probably need to come off the ground, which is when you're uh, going into Urdhva from the floor. You probably need a moment where your heels are off when the head is down, because then you're going to be shortening your, and this is the prepare. So it's okay that the heels are off in the prepare. When you come up, in my opinion, you should keep the heels firmly rooted down. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a, uh, some people like to lift the heels. I'm not a huge fan of lifting the heels under one. Uh, and if it were, again, some teachers have a different logic of why they do that. You have to ask them. I personally don't cue that because I want people to be grounded into their heels this is what helps you to protect your lower back and help you stand up and drop back into Urdhva Dhanurasana. The only time I advise people to lift the heels, and there is one time that I say you should lift your heels, and this is when you're trying to jump from Urdhva Dhanurasana into handstand to make what's called TikTok. And this is when you, you know, jump over and you land in backbend and you got to go from backbend back up to handstand and all the way over. So... If you're going to try to stand up on your feet, I think we want to keep those feet firmly pressed into the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, getting the glutes to relax in backbending. So let's talk about that. When we have the backbending position, if your butt muscles are squeezed before you articulate your spinal extension, this can rotate your tailbone under and keep you in a posterior tuck of your tailbone or in a posterior tilt of your pelvis. So we want to avoid that as your entry into backbend. 
And instead, relax the glutes. So you have to use your back muscles and your pelvic floor to articulate the spinal extension. However, if once you're in the back bend, I have done my maximum back bend, then your butt muscles click on a little bit. Well, that's okay because they come on as stabilizers. So the way I like to think about glutes and back bending is that the glutes are not the initiators, but they're the stabilizers. And then this will help you not consider your butt muscles to be bad. And that's also important. You know, so if you feel your glutes squeezing in back bends, it can kind of create this negative self-talk loop of, oh no, here we go again. My glute, my butt is squeezing. I'm gonna, you don't want to go there. If it, they come on at the end and they're stabilizing and then that's a totally, totally okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. Okay. Place for have them come on. Mm-hmm. So let's see, maybe there was one, one other, maybe one other, maybe one other question. Oh, Anna Beatrice is asking a nice question. Hi, Anna. Thanks for practicing. Will there be other guided led primary series and conferences throughout the year? We have, uh, first of all, thank you for asking. This is wonderful. Then, uh, definitely for the month of June, we have them all planned. We definitely intend to continue having the Saturday ritual classes. Uh, continuing to move forward. Uh, so we really, really, uh, it, as long as you keep showing up, so everybody keep practicing and then we'll keep being here. The day there are no students, then the day we don't teach anymore. So it's up to you, all right? Now, uh, next Saturday, uh, we have a David Swenson. And then two weeks from today, we have Petri, uh, Petri from uh, Finland. Very, very wonderful uh, to have Petri and very wonderful to have David. And then three weeks, we have David again. So definitely the rest of this month we have scheduled. So come and take practice. Now let's see, we've got one last question before, uh, let's see, uh, Erica has a question. Sometimes I feel like my body geometry is wrong for swinging my legs through. Can all body shapes get there eventually? And so Erica says she has a short body and long legs to swing through. Well, my friend, I know what usually comes with long legs. Who knows what usually comes with long legs? Anyone? Long arms usually come with the long legs. So if you got long legs, you just need to organize the legs into a little package. And I would recommend that in particularly for jumping through that you break the movement down into uh, maybe three parts. So step one, you bring your legs forward into like a lolasana. Step two, you walk, swing, or glide, or float, or sweep, or even walk the legs through. And step three, you end in the L-sit. And if you find that difficult, then I always recommend to practice Lolasana and the L-sit. Those two positions will set up your body, everyone's body, for the jumping through position. So work on those two shapes. And if you really, really want to go a little bonkers with the jumping back and the jumping through experience, then you can come take a yoga drills class with me. And then we do all kinds of crazy things to make you lift up, which are always fun and you get very sore. So that can be fun. And then I think we have one, maybe one last question. So Sierra had the question uh, and Sierra, who I think maybe has signed off, but maybe she can listen later. So it's a good question. Uh, Sierra says, it's a question about teaching yoga and how you know you're truly ready to be a teacher and to teach others safely and respectfully. What's the level of wisdom and knowledge that would be the best to have? So many teachers say you need to just jump into it and learn on the way, but it doesn't feel right. Well, good, Sierra. That's a good, good, good thing. If you just jump in, you know, 
This seems also incredulous, right? So they're going to jump in and then experiment on the poor students, you know, <laughs> and then they're going to sacrifice their bodies. On the other level, sometimes we hold ourselves back and we think, oh no, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not, I don't speak Sanskrit. I can't teach yoga. I haven't memorized, you know, all of the yoga poses. I, and I haven't mastered all the yoga poses, so I can't teach yoga. So we have to find the balance. First, I recommend as a bare minimum that you have a firm relationship with your teacher and you talk over teaching with your teacher. Because if you don't have some authority under whose umbrella you can fall under, then you're only standing on your own authority. And that is, you know, can be problematic because it can feed the ego. We can suddenly think I'm fabulous. You know, the more fabulous we think we are, then the more delusion we can spin around that fabulousness. So I think as a bare minimum, have some relationship with your teacher and then talk specifically to your teacher, not generally teachers, because some teachers have different tradition. They don't know what is going on with you. So Ashtanga yoga is very particular to really teach a traditional Ashtanga yoga practice is a different uh, than say teaching, you know, like an intro uh, is a different, this has a difference. Mm-hmm. So have some relationship with your teacher and then talk to whether you're ready to teach specifically with your teacher who knows you, who knows your practice, who knows how long you've been practicing, who knows your level of commitment to yoga within the larger lineage-based practice of yoga. Do you need to do a teacher training? I don't know. You know, uh, sometimes the, the teacher training, you don't learn anything in the teacher training. Then you just get the paper. Now you have done this. So, you know, you need to have a relationship with your teacher. Sure, you can have done teacher training with that person, but talk to that person. Then number two, this is also really important. Don't force it. So if people are asking you naturally, hey, I see you do this yoga and it's making a really big impact in your life. Do you think you could show me? then this is like signs from the universe that like, hey, maybe, mm, you know, maybe I can start sharing this. If your teacher definitely starts saying, hey, have you thought about teaching? You know, this is a, this is a good sign that says maybe it is something for me to consider. Mm-hmm. We don't want to rush that. However, there is no kind of level of wisdom and knowledge that we can set up. I, I think there's, there are base levels that I would like to see people practicing yoga have, but this is not a popular concept. I once proposed to um, some of the governing bodies that uh, exist within the North America that we should have some multiple choice tests for the people that have passed these, uh, you know, hour-based training programs that include a cursory level of Sanskrit knowledge that include, you know, what you would need to pass to graduate from a university just to understand, you know, that you have some basic idea. This asana means this in English. This is where yoga comes from. This is the Bhagavad Gita. This is the Mahabharata. Just some basic, uh, you know, knowledge of the lineage of yoga that was not very popular, you know. So um, this has not happened in terms of a standardization. But I think we can say some base level of immersion within the culture, the origin culture of India could be very, very beneficial, you know? So for example, if you're using words and you don't know what these words mean, look up, you have to spend some time either taking a Sanskrit course or look up what these words mean, work with your teacher and spend some time using those. Cause we don't want to throw around, you know, terms because they're exotified or, you know, um, make us uh, appear to have more knowledge than we actually have, right? 
So there is a very good chanting resource. My chanting teacher from India, Jayashree, she has a course on Om stars. So if you really want to look for that, this is a real traditional experience of what it's like to sit there with her. Very, very wonderful. So I think I saw one other question. Let me see, where did it go? So Yasini, have I said your name incorrectly? Uh, Yasin, Yasini, are you still? Yasin, hi Yasin, how are you? Oh, I see where you're putting your hand. Yes, yes, no, thank you. I see where you're putting your hand. Okay, so in the Garbhikindasana posture, first of all, this is a difficult pose. So you're not the only one that has a problem with this. Many students have a problem with this. Even people that they put both legs behind the head, then they come to this uh, posture and then they take this lotus position. And then many people go down and they look and if it's not the big calf muscle, then other people just think the whole leg is just generally too big. You know, I've had so many students look up at me and say, I'm so sorry. Generally, my entire leg is too big. The calf is big, the thigh is big. Also, the arm is a little big. I'm never putting the hand through. Thank you very much. No, thank you. You know, and so it's okay. Some people, it's true, they're not going to do it. And, and I've seen some students, they have forced it too much and then they harm their knees in this posture. So I think it's very, very good that you do, number one, work on deepening your lotus position. So if you can really focus not on internal rotation, but on external rotation, this is going to improve your lotus position. So you can think about uh, taking um, longer holds at the end of practice in your lotus position so that you can get more comfortable in lotus. As your lotus position improves, Garbhipindasana itself will improve. So that's the first one, just by itself, generally for everyone. If the lotus position is difficult, Garbhipindasana is very, very difficult in and of itself. So we want to find you know, various modifications, like the one you said that you're doing, some other people, they don't even put the hands through, they just hold the lotus into the body. So we just want to work the lotus position. You can do some stretches to help uh, with the external rotation for lotus position. For example, long holds in half lotus can be very beneficial. Twists in half lotus can also be beneficial. So you take like, so, you know, we take, we take uh, the bind and fold forward for primary series. Uh, If you want to really maybe spend some time outside of primary series and and then uh, take the half lotus, bind your half lotus, and then twist away from it. This can actually be very beneficial to deepening the full lotus position if you manage to hold for like one minute and be very, very relaxed and not too forceful. So work on opening the lotus. Another posture that can help with opening the lotus is uh, the closed knee pigeon pose. So instead of keeping the shin bone parallel with the front of the mat, which we're very often advised to do, if you close the knee for pigeon, this is highly beneficial to deepen your lotus position. So so this could be one that might be beneficial for where you are. Um, Finally, uh, in Garipinasana itself, once you have a very comfortable lotus position, uh, and we can check that to in um, yoga mudra at the end when we fold forward, So if you can get uh, your chin on the ground in yoga mudra, then 100% your lotus is very comfortable. If the chin is not on the ground, then we can think, oh, my lotus is not comfortable yet, so we can improve the lotus. And as long as we can improve the lotus, then we know that that will bear its impact on improving Garvipindasana. And this is true for everyone, okay? Second part of your question, though, is about the, the, the calf muscles. And I want to talk about the, the, the way that we work with that. So have you ever worked with a spray bottle? Has that ever, you ever tried that? <laughs> so sometimes a spray bottle just with the water is not enough. Sometimes we need to practice in shorts, make it very, very sweaty, and then add a little teensy bit of soap to the water. 
Mm-hmm. And then the second part of that is that we should always in Garvey Pindasana start with the right hand. If you start with the left hand, which is the easier one, then the right hand, even me, I have a very hard time uh, getting the right hand through. So we should always start in Garvey Pindasana with the right hand. Now you want to check your technique. If you're putting your hand like this, just flat and putting it through, there's no way it will come through. You have to make the hand like a, like a, like a, like a little chicken beak. And then if you push straight, it also will not work. We have to push at an angle. So you don't push down, but in Garbha Pindasana with the right hand, you just, you don't need to see the whole way through. You just put that little peek into the, the space that doesn't exist. And then you wiggle, 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 wiggle. And then you push sideways. And only when the elbow gets through, then you bring it up. You're probably doing that already with the left hand. But you have to try to start with the right hand um, and put the, maybe you need to put a little soap on that side and do that. Even if you, even if it doesn't get through, you start trying with that one first. As the lotus improves and the lotus gets more loose, then that will compensate for what you feel as the very muscular calf muscles that you have. As long as the lotus is a little tight, there might be some, some restrictions. So try with the right hand first. Doesn't happen. Do the exact modification that you're doing until the lotus improves, but I want you to try every day right hand first. Make sense? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you'll do it. Many, many people who think, no way, this is not happening for me. As their lotus improves, this posture really, really makes a big change. Okay, Kathleen's got a question. Hi, Kathleen. Let's see. Kathleen at the end says, do you have any other physical activity or hobbies or practices in your life? Or are there any that do or do not complement a daily asana practice? I sit so many hours at computer each day and want to be active in the evenings in some way. Kathleen, I can recommend a wonderful activity in the evenings that I engage in almost every day, which is to go for a very relaxing walk in the nature of some type. We don't need to do more than that. This is just, you could be outside and go for a very relaxing walk, not a speed walk. Like, oh, she told me to walk. I'm gonna walk. Then you know, then the next day the hamstring is super tight for the yoga practice. Just a very pleasant walk in the nature to take some air, to go outside, to see the sunset, if the sunset is available to see, and to spend a little time outside, breathe the fresh air. This is wonderful. So I think then this is something I can really recommend for you to try um, in the afternoons. What is what I usually say about other physical activity and other practices is um that we want to have one main intensive physical discipline. If you're practicing yoga intensively, we want to refrain from doing other things intensively. We can do other things in a fun way, but that we enjoy. But if you do two things intensively, then the body can get overworked. So I had a student that she was doing very intensive Ashtanga yoga, and she didn't tell me that she had also uh, started training for a marathon. Uh, and then it was a very intensive marathon. She didn't tell me. But she was doing not only first series, second series, and a little bit of third series. Well, she ultimately got the injury, not from yoga, but during her running training. So she had some injury that came up during that. And then, and then she, so she came in very injured. She said, I can't practice. I have this very, I have to need, I, my doctor said, I can't do anything. I need to rest for one full month and just lie in the bed. And I thought, oh, this is horrible. What did you do? Did this happen yesterday in practice? She said, no, I didn't tell you. But after practice, now I'm training for a marathon the last three months and I'm running, I don't know how many miles every day. And I said, oh, why didn't you tell me this? I would have told you to stop doing all these advanced practice and just take sun salutations and standing poses. 
you know, that your yoga should support this marathon training. You know, now you're doing two intensive things. You know, we're not, we like to think we're invincible, but you know, there are some limits. When the limits come, we need to respect that. We need to work in a balanced way. So I like one intensive practice. Look, you want to train for a marathon, train for a marathon, but let your yoga be relaxed during that period. You want to be going for the Ironman, you know, and then go for the Ironman. I'm not telling you not to, you want to do intensive weight training, go for it. Just make your yoga relaxed during that training period. And the same thing is reversed. You want to do intensive yoga. You want to do second series, third series, Ashtanga yoga, all these powerful lift-ups, then everything else very relaxed, very easy. You want to have in your mind that you have to do the leg behind the head the next day. Oh, I'm putting my leg behind the head the next day. Maybe I just chill out right now. So some friend invites you to do CrossFit. I have had this happen to me. I have some friend, you got to try CrossFit Kino. You will love it. And I said, I'm sure I will not love it. But if you really must make me come, you must come. I'm sure you will love it. It's just like Ashtanga. And I thought, oh, you don't do Ashtanga. You don't know what Ashtanga is, but uh, you're my friend. So I go to CrossFit with you. First of all, I had a big problem because I didn't own any sneakers. And she said, you have sneakers. And I said, no, I don't own any sneakers. I'm so sorry. I guess I can't go with you. I will get you sneakers. Oh, God. Fine, you get me sneakers. We're the same size. You wear, I have these new shoes I bought. You can wear my new shoes. And I'm, ah, I'm going to go to CrossFit with uh, new shoes. It's going to be great. So I don't like sneakers. I, I, you wear them. You can, my husband, he loves sneakers. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. It's just a personal preference. You know what I mean? Some people, they don't like, uh, you know, broccoli. Uh, I happen to like broccoli a little bit more than sneakers. So then, um, you know, I went to CrossFit. And in the CrossFit, the people there were, they're very pushy. I don't know if anybody's tried CrossFit. And they had me lift this weight. And they said, oh, you look at your arms. You can take the next one. And I thought, no, no. I want to take the smallest weight that you have. Thank you very much. And I took the smallest weight. And I very delicately lifted it up. And I delicately put it down. They were like, you should swing. And I just kept thinking in my head, oh, no, no, my friend. Tomorrow morning at about 6 in the morning, my leg will be behind my head. I am not going to swing some 10 pound weight above my head. And then tomorrow morning, I cannot put my leg behind my head because you want me to swing this bell up and down for what purpose? There's no purpose, you know? So I just said, uh, no, thank you. And then they kept, you should do, you should do this harder, harder. I just kept in my mind. No, I have to put my leg behind the head. Finally, at the end, I said, listen, this is fun, but this is not for me. So I just told my friend, thank you. This is not for me. If you want to go for a walk in a nice park, I'll go with you anytime. If you want, even if we, even if you must get a little more power, we can do a bike ride in the park or something like this. This is fine. I'm not doing that again. I said, please. And I gave her back the sneakers. Please, you will put these to more use than I will. I'm not a fan of running because I don't, I don't, I just don't like it. But some people, they love running. So you love running, do it. Right. But uh, keep, uh, keep a balance is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. I see one other question from Tertia. Maybe this can be the last question since we're almost uh, done with the time. So Tertius says, can I ask a last question on injuries during practice? Sometimes, for whatever reason, I feel a pull in my muscles while entering an asana. And that discomfort lasts for some time. Do I stop and lay off for some time? What's the best way to deal with these kinds of pulled muscles? First of all, try not to continue in the asana in the moment you feel the pull. You feel the pull? This is the red light from the body. What do we do in the red light, in the intersection? What do you do? You stop. So you want to listen to the body's language. It's a, it's a pull, sharp, burning sensation. You feel a pull, you have to stop. Back off a little bit. You want to look for comfortable discomfort, which is like a burning feeling in the belly of the muscle, not a pull and not like a stringy sensation. If it's a stringy pull, 
sensation in the muscle, then something's not right. So we want to back off, reevaluate, check your alignment, and start again. So I would say stop before uh, it gets it gets to the point of creating an injury or something uh, a discomfort that lasts for some time. If you just get a soreness that lasts for 24 to 48 hours, this is life. You know, this, this is you can't expect not to have that. You know, your muscle going to get sore. You're going to wake up tomorrow, probably from this class tomorrow. You're going to wake up. Quadriceps might be sore. This or that might be sore. That's, that's no problem. You want to celebrate that. But if suddenly you cannot raise your arm because you pushed it too hard and there was a pull in your, in your bicep tendon or your deltoid, your rotator cuff or something like that, that's too far. So we want to get very sensitive about listening to the body's languages so that we can learn to speak with sensation. And then when you, when you feel a red light from the body, you stop and you check in. Oh, I get a green light. And so we want to get really good at listening to what is the type of pain that will lead to healthy soreness, the soreness that makes me stronger and more flexible. And what is the unhealthy type of pain that leads to an injury that lasts for some time that I need to get treatment for and that's going to prevent me from practicing or enjoying my life. And as you continue to practice, if you just uh, get that information, then that itself is a type of, um, you know, liberation, you could say a type of awakening, because then you learn to be in contact with your body, which is pretty cool. So everyone, thank you so much for joining for this, uh, this class. I really appreciate it. And I, I look forward to seeing you again. I'll be practicing next week. So I'll see you on the mat next week. And uh, just want to send everyone a lot of love. And I give you, hope you keep a little inspiration to keep practicing. And I'll see you again real soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.